Uh, it is February 18th. It is 2009. Our message tonight is Moriah, but not Mariah Carey. When you say the word Mariah, people don't know what that means. It's only mentioned a couple times in the word. And if you ask, if you do leno walking, you go out on the street and you just ask 10 people, hey, what is Mariah? Probably not very many are going to know. Uh, Mariah is a word that is used to describe two places in the Bible. I'll show you that tonight. But the two places are a region of mountains that is about a mile long. Um, and I don't know how wide, but it's a mountain chain. And also a particular mountain that is the most prominent within that chain. Mariah is a word also that means chosen or shown by Yahweh. This means that of everywhere on earth, this one place carries a name that says, God saw and picked and chose that place. That's pretty special. When you hear a word like that that says, out of everywhere on the globe, Yahweh says that one, it's something worth looking at to see what's happened there throughout history. Uh, if you'll turn with me to the book of John, I want to read to you a pretty peculiar statement. Tell me when you're in John, we're going to be in the 8th chapter. There. That girl is fast. Been there. Been there. Okay, in John 8, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 4th book of the New Testament, 8th chapter, starting in the 52nd verse, we are picking up in the middle of an argument. An argument between a man that is the embodiment of all that God ever desired and men who loved God but were misdirected in their sense of self-righteousness. Starting in the 52nd verse, At this the Jews, Jews meaning Jewish leadership, explained, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? The argument is that Jesus has said, if you believe in His word, you will never die. They said, wait a minute. All of us are descendant from Abraham. Abraham got a very special promise that he would be blessed, that he would rise up a nation that would bless all the nations on the earth. And now you're talking about a promise that is better than that. A promise that goes further than that. Are you literally saying that you're better than Abraham? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. That's pretty direct, isn't it? Though you do not know Him, I know Him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. <laughs> How'd you like to be told that? That'd make you feel good in public, wouldn't it? Make you sorry you spoke up, wouldn't it? This is an incredibly harsh thing to say. But apparently it was needed. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. This is difficult to understand. You say, how on earth could Abraham have seen Jesus dead? Uh, what year are we in? Y'all can talk to me. What year? 2009. The year that Jesus entered into humanity, we began numbering our dates from that year. Now, there, there was no year zero, and uh, there's some debate over actually what year he came, but roughly speaking... 2009 means 2009 years since his arrival. It was almost that distance of time before Jesus that Abraham lived. So when you meet somebody today and they said, hey, I've seen Jesus, you said, well, what, in a vision? I said, well, no, no, I, I've, I've seen Jesus. I walked with him. I, I talked with him. If they're not speaking in an allegorical sense or of some supernatural experience, they would have to be claiming that they were nearly 2,000 years old. Jesus said that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced in it. How does that happen since there's 1,900 years difference between those two men? I mean, you know, my sister is old. <laughs> but she's not that old. There's nobody in the church old enough to have lived 1,900 years. There's a timeline back there that has people's ages that go from Adam all the way up through the present. And the oldest on the timeline is 969 years. His name was Methuselah. He died in the Noahic flood, but nobody ever lived 1,900 years. So what is it that Jesus is saying? 
Let's turn to Genesis 22. You ever looked at one of those pictures? And maybe, I remember seeing one at Walmart. It was so funny. Everybody is standing there and they're staring at this picture. And one's claiming to see this and then another's claiming to see that. And supposedly when you're looking at the picture, your eyes go somewhat out of focus and there's an image behind the pixels that are on the painting. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The, the problem is the one that I was actually staring at had a big sign at the bottom that said, this is not one of those photos. Okay? And everybody's claiming to see different things in it. The word can be like that. One says, oh, this means this. The other says, this means that. And how can you really know? And yet there is what is called a scarlet thread that goes all the way through the word that any casual observer begins to notice. Similar themes that repeat over and over and over. Matthew spoke about something in mathematics called fractals. And I'm not as smart as Matthew, so I don't want to relive that whole message. I enjoyed it very much. But basically, fractals had to do with smaller images that looked like larger images that repeated over and over and over. And what we see in the Word of God is we see consistent themes. In every book, in some way, it speaks about the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, if you've been told that the Bible is an instruction book about everything that there ever was, you were lied to. That's not right. Uh, the Bible does not tell you how to work on my Ford. And if you know how to work on a Ford, this is a good church for you because your pastor's Ford breaks down a lot. The Bible does not tell you how to work on a Ford. The Bible does not necessarily tell you how to perform heart surgery. The Bible is an instruction about the creation of man, the fall of man, and God's efforts to redeem mankind. That is what the Bible is about. It's not a book about science, though it contains science. It's not a book about medicine, although it contains lots and lots of medical facts that could never have been known by any way other than supernatural knowledge. The Bible is predominantly the story of the creation, fall, and restoration of man. So because of that, what you see are stories that deal with the creation, the fall, and the restoration of man. And this occurs over and over and over to get you to relate to something. Now, they're not mythical stories. They're real stories of real people. But it happens for a reason. Because all of us know that we were created for a purpose. The devil lies to you and says otherwise. But at some point in your life, you long for something just a little more. At some point in your life, all of you have experienced overwhelming guilt. If not over something that you just did, maybe it's over something you didn't do. Maybe it's not a single event, but just a regret of the way that things have turned out. And all of us hope for and want and long for something better than that. This is eternity that is bound in the hearts of men. And it has come out in every tribe, every tongue, and every nation all over the globe. You can be an atheist and claim that there is no God, but want to feel better about yourself because you drive a hybrid. Or one of those smart cars that doesn't seem so smart to me. 41 miles to the gallon, $34,000, and it would fit twice in the bed of my truck. My wife had a Saturn in 1993 that was a whole car, an actual whole car, and it got better gas mileage than that. But people do all kinds of things to try to alleviate a sense of guilt that we feel. Well, in Genesis 22, I want to tell you a story about a man that prayed and prayed and prayed and clung to his hope that God would give him a son. And God gave him that son. The thing that he wanted more than anything else in the world, Abram's name meant exalted father. And God spoke to him and said, your name will be Abraham. He added something to his name. And in Hebrew, the way that you say that, Abraham, includes a breathing. As if God Himself breathed something into Abraham. And the literal change in His name from exalted Father to adding some Spirit of God into His name meant that He would be the Father of many nations. That's how you define Abraham. So the Father of many nations now has the promised Son that He had always wanted. Something He had labored for for 20 years. Something that he had made lots of mistakes along the way and now that son was here and he was growing to maturity. Anybody in here ever known somebody that prayed for a child for a long time before they had one? Anybody here ever adopted a child? 
there was a man that was in the administration at my high school and he had a son that he and his wife had prayed for for 14 years before they had and I knocked out his son's teeth I have never seen fury like that mother was upset you would have thought that there had never been a physical incident anywhere in the history of the world worse than that I didn't do it on purpose at least I didn't think I did but that mother and father's love for that son was special I mean, way beyond what you would normally see in a protective nature. Why? Because they had yearned for. They had wanted that little boy. They had looked at others and cried. God, they have children. Why don't I? It's a good way to lose that cell phone, Judah. And it hurt. You ever seen somebody brought to tears when you tell them you're pregnant? Because they're trying and they can't? That's an amazing thing, huh? With that in mind, let's read about this father and son. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, don't you love that? The Bible can be a little redundant at times. <laughs> but maybe the Scripture just wants you to know God knows your name. Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. At this point, are you thinking, can't be God? God would never say anything like this. God would not ask you to do this. Can you imagine how abhorrent of a thought this must have been? Everything that Abraham knew about God up to this point was that he was merciful, that he was good, that he was loving, that he was kind. And now he's asking something of Abraham that no parent would be willing to do. But you need to understand, these men were not serving themselves. These men were serving a purpose that would go way beyond their own generation. Before we get into that, I want you to understand the words in Hebrew, your son, your only son, when translated into Greek, which is how our New Testament came to us, and then translated from Greek to English, do you know what that phrase is? Your son, your only begotten son. Does that sound familiar to you? Was there ever an exalted father, a father of all of the nations, that there's a story we know about, about his son, his only begotten son, and a great sacrifice that occurred? See, there are patterns that repeat throughout the Bible of a loving father who makes a great sacrifice for the benefit of all mankind. Where did he say this would occur? The region of Moriah. This is important. It's going to be a point that we come back to throughout this message tonight. There is a region of Moriah that contains many mountains. And it is on only one of the mountains that this takes place. Fair enough? Okay. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. Just for fun, you ought to read that in the King James sometimes. You, uh, you're a special person if it doesn't make you giggle just a little bit. None of y'all have King James Bibles? No? Y'all are all just very mature. Jacob, I'm going to spare you having to read that to everybody here. But suffice it to say, in 1611, when King Jimmy... He didn't really translate it. When he hired people to translate it as a concession because he didn't want the Europeans to have something he didn't have, they spoke differently. So it's okay if you have a translation that is modernized so that you can understand it. That's actually a good thing. It's only a corrupt, perverse church that does not want you to literally understand the Word. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. That's an amazing statement of faith, isn't it? Has God ever asked you to do anything that you didn't want to do? How about love your neighbor and he keeps running over your garbage cans? How about love your neighbor and he backed over your water main? How about love your neighbor and he only seems to allow his dog to wander into your yard for that special activity that dogs do? How about love your neighbor and they just cut you off in traffic? He set out for the place. He didn't arrive there immediately. It was a journey. Most of the time, doing what God has called us to do involves a journey of considerable effort. That God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. 
This is the only time that the scripture ever says Abraham saw something in the distance. And it's almost ironic that Jesus says Abraham longed for my day, he rejoiced at the thought of my day, and I tell you, he saw it. Was Jesus' day a distance from Abraham's day? Some 1900 years. In what way could Abraham have seen it? Something in Abraham's life and experience taught him about God's redemptive work. All of the Bible is a repeating story about God's redemptive work to get you one message. God doesn't want to leave you the way that you are. He wants to help you. It's a bit of a journey. It will involve sacrifice. But He will not leave you the way that you are if you just trust Him. He saw the place in the distance. He said to the servant, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham's called the father of the faithful. All three world religions love him. That's interesting. If you don't know what to say in the presence of your Islamic friends, you can talk fondly of Abraham and it works just fine. If you don't have Islamic friends and you have Jewish friends maybe, it works good for them too. What does Abraham mean? We will go up there, we will worship, and we will come back. What did God tell him he was on a journey to go do? Go kill his son. But I suppose that probably wouldn't go over too well with the servants, right? Hey, I'm going to go murder my son. Uh, you guys just wait here. So do you think Abraham just lied? Is there anything in Abraham's character thus far that would make you think that he was a liar? Probably not. The book of Hebrews tells us in the 11th chapter, the 17th through 19th verse, that the reason Abraham did this is he reasoned in his heart that if God was going to destroy this promised son, he was also going to raise him from the dead. Something in the redemptive story, something in the repeating pattern that unfolds throughout the Word requires us to believe that even when something looks dead, God can breathe life into it again. He can breathe life into your marriage again. He can breathe life into your relationship with your children again. He can breathe life into a dream that looks like it cannot come to pass. He can do it. God's redemption always involves resurrection. That may not mean much to you in an academic sense, but if you've ever been in a place where you wished you were dead, you're longing for some kind of resurrecting hope in your life. The Bible is that story. I've lived long enough now to see people married that never thought they would be married again. To see people have children who never thought anything was in their future except miscarriage. To see people find new hope and new life that thought that their lives were over and had contemplated killing themselves if not tried. I don't need somebody to prove to me from an intellectual standpoint that the word is true anymore. I've seen its redemptive plan played out in life after life after life. And this is an overwhelming witness that God is who He says He is. Abraham had a faith that if God was going to strike down the boy, God was going to raise the boy up because God is faithful and He had told him, through Isaac, the whole world's going to be blessed. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. Get this, how about Isaac in the scenario? Most people think Isaac is 17, 18 years old. Now, I was probably a scrawny, puny 17 or 18 year old kid. Very docile, humble, sweet, <laughs> submissive. My parents are on the front row about to throw up. But at 18, there were not very many people that could have saddled me with wood and told me to carry it up on top of a mountain and make me do it. Certainly not a man who was nearly a hundred years old. You understand? This took some level of obedience from the son. So what we have here is a promised son born somewhat supernaturally, born out of place and out of time, who is willingly follow, following his father to a place of sacrifice. Does this sound like a familiar story to you? It's played out over and over and over throughout the Word. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
Is this just wishful thinking or is he lying? Or is it a statement of faith? There are so many times in our lives where we recognize something is wrong and that there is a need to change it. But how often are we willing to rely on an unseen God and an unseen force to fix that problem? Isn't it much easier to say, my language is foul, I am going to fix that. My relationship with my wife is not good. I am going to fix that. My children are not respectful of me. I am going to fix that. I'm about to get fired from my job. I am going to fix that. There's a natural tendency in mankind to be self-reliant. And so what happens is we go from diet to diet, financial plan to financial plan, job to job, lover to lover, and we never are able to fix the problem. Because the problem is that God has to provide something we do not have. In His mercy, He has to provide something we don't have. When you read the book of Judges, it is almost monotonous. A leader raises up and he rescues the people of God. And the people of God say, ah, <laughs> we are rescued. And then they fall back into slavery. And so God raises up another one and ah, <laughs> we are rescued. And you guessed it, they fall back into slavery. And that goes on for 400 years. All to teach a message. Without God, we're little better than slaves. It's His mercy that we're dependent on and His mercy that we need to appeal to. We don't need one more three-step, seven-step, or twelve-step program. We need a complete and wholehearted reliance, trust in God. Abraham answered, God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I don't know what it is that you may have to trust God for. What you may have to tie to an altar and give to God, trusting that He will provide what you need. I only know that our God never allows you to give Him more than He gives you. So whatever ashes you're able to bring Him, He will give you something beautiful for it. The very best that Abraham had was Isaac. But in the end, he doesn't even lose Isaac. Instead, he gains a far better promise than he would ever have had if he wasn't obedient. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son your only son. Before we move on to this other parts of this message, did you hear the words, now I know? How many of you have been taught all your life, God knows everything, right? No sense in doing this or that because God already knows what I'm going to do. You can make that argument. And I can support it from a scriptural standpoint. But you know what else I can show you? Ten or fifteen times in the Word that God says, now I know. He might be waiting to see what you're going to do in a situation to determine His next move with you. Maybe He is looking to see whether you will stretch forth in trust in some area to see whether or not yours is a life that He can bless or not. How many people do you think God has blessed in untold ways and it turned out to be something that was spit in His face and not used for God? We won't name them, but how many national ministries did he bless mightily and ended up causing his name to be cursed everywhere? How will God know that you will do good with what he gives you? You have to step forward in some area of trust and show him. And he says, now I know, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. <laughs> Abraham looked up there in the thicket and saw a ram caught by his horns. What makes a ram a ram is that he has horns. And this ram is caught by his horns, his sign of authority, in a thicket, the sign of sin. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. You hear that? The son was going to die. His dream, his hope, his future was going to die. And instead, 
God provided the king of the sheep to die in his place. Does that begin to strike a familiar chord with anybody? The scripture is full of redemptive story within redemptive story. <coughs> Scarcely everywhere you look, you can find this. In every chapter of the Bible, if you look hard. But this is not what we're covering tonight, the ram and his horns. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. If you were going to kill your son at God's request, which is a crazy request, and then you set forward three days in the distance, you climb up on a mountain, he's bound, the knife is raised, and you are stopped, and you look up and there's a ram there that God's provided, would you name the mountain the Lord will provide? Wouldn't you name it the Lord just provided? The Lord has provided? The mountain of Isaac's escape? You know, wouldn't you name it something in the past tense? Apparently, Abraham saw that this was about more than him. It was about more than that ram. It was a place in history where God would provide something important. And he wanted the mountain named that. The Lord will provide. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only begotten, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed because of me. One of the things I found amazing when I was in Israel the last time, well, and the first time too, every time I've been in Israel I found this amazing. Everywhere you go, after a while, it's like overload. Here, here's the stream where David picked up rocks. Over here, here's the place where the angel spoke to Mary. Over here is where we think the crucifixion was. This may have been the tomb. This, this, this. Everywhere you go to where it's like, oh, where do I step? Where is it okay? And then what's worse is competing churches said, no, no, that same spot, it's over here. <laughs> and there's at least two opinions everywhere. But I'm told when you have two Jews, you have three opinions. And Christians are worse than that. So... Everywhere you go, something amazing happened. And yet, as I listened to Matthew's message last Wednesday on fractals, where you have one triangle, and when you look at it from a distance, it looks like a big triangle. When you zoom in, there seems to be thousands upon thousands, infinite numbers of triangles within the bigger one. I began to think about the Word and think about Israel. See, there's a region called Moriah where this beautiful thing happened. But there's also a mountain called Moriah. And the region from one tip to the other tip is not more than 1,600 meters. And as I thought about the other mountain, I remembered this story. Turn with me to Chronicles, so you'll be hanging a right in your book. We'll be going from left to right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Ruth. There we go. Come on, let's get there. 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 There, there, there. We're going to... First Chronicles. Tell me when you're in the 21st chapter. Y'all know that we're supposed to end at 8.30. Right? This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. If you don't recognize that phrase, it comes frequently in the book of Revelation. It's not in those best-selling books by the psychologists. But it is in the all-time best-selling book written by the man imprisoned on Patmos who actually saw into the heavens and wrote what he saw. Wouldn't it be good to read that and not have to read what some psychologist said about it? When's the last time you read it? Okay, so in Chronicles 21, we're going to start in the first verse. Satan rose up against Israel. Think about that sentence. Satan, his name means the enemy, the adversary, the opposition. Rose up against Israel. What's Israel mean? Anybody? The prince with God. So the adversary rose up against the prince with God and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commander of the troops, Go out and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. That sounds like a relatively innocuous request, doesn't it? You remember when we said that everything that God gives you has to involve a resurrection hope. There has to be some threat of death for His powerful life to fill you. The temptation in us is always to be so self-reliant 
to fix all of our problems that we never give God a chance to fix it. David's not even facing war right now. But if he were going to face war, he wants to know just how strong he is. And God doesn't like this. He wanted David to depend upon God to tell him whether or not he would win or lose. God to tell him what was good for him and bad for him. Does that sound like the first man and woman in the garden? He wants us to be dependent upon Him for our choices in life. Not for us simply to take a census and say, well, I have enough money to do this. Take a census and say, I have enough force available to do this. That's tempting with a teenage son. For us to take a census and say, I can manipulate this. He wants us to be dependent upon Him. So the story we're reading is not unlike the story of your life or the story that we just read about with Abraham, the death of a dream. The story that we're reading is about man who keeps getting into the position of leaning on his own arm and it causes problems. Then report back to me that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the King, are they not all the Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? You ever been stubborn? Didn't listen to the people around you? I've been there a bunch. The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. You know, sometimes you don't know it, but when you're around people of faith and you're bragging about what you are able to do, and what all has happened in your life, and then I told him, and then I, and then I. It's repulsive. It makes the people around you want to throw up. They just don't tell you. When people are heroes in their own mind, when they're the pinnacle of every story they tell, when they were in high school, they threw the touchdown. They also caught the touchdown pass. They also coached the game, and after the game, it was them who erected and took down the scoreboard. It is sickening. Because inwardly, we all know something. We're made of the same thing, the same insecurities, the same shortcomings, the same problems. And it's God's grace that we have anything that we have. People don't readily acknowledge that. We cover ourselves with fig leaves, just like the first two human beings did. We look at each other and we say, I'm okay, you're okay, but don't look too deeply, okay? Don't get too close to me, okay? Because then you might see me for what I am. One of the benefits of fellowship is we do. We all see each other for what we are. Men and women who need the mercy of God and the power of God working in our lives. Not one any better than the other. Some have more, some have less. Do you think I was talking about money or sin? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. Then we skip down to verse 7. This command also was evil in the sight of God. So he punished Israel. When you think of the words evil, what do you normally think of? You think of something like Adolf Hitler, right? You think of something horrible. What was evil? Evil is relying on your own arm rather than God's. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. If we're not talking about the death of our dreams, if we're not talking about sacrificing that one thing that you love, then we're dealing with another problem throughout the Bible. How do I get rid of this overwhelming guilt? Are there people in your life that you can't look in the eye? People you hope you never see again? That if you run into each other at a gas station, you look the other way and pretend to have not seen them? Sometimes it's because of searing pain. Sometimes it's because of regret. It's all kinds of things. But this is inherent to all mankind. What do I do with those failures? What do I do with the numerous times that I took a census and still didn't win the battle? I have done a very foolish thing. Well, step one is we need to begin to get honest with God. We need to say, Lord, this plan I've had for my life is not working out so great. If you never admit you have a problem, how do you expect to get help? Do you have a relative that's mad at you that you didn't know they were in trouble, but they also never told you? 
How frustrating is that? Nobody else has those relatives? But, but I needed $100 and nobody would help me. Did you ask me for $100 and I missed it? Well, I was there at Christmas and you knew it. Really? How? Nobody's got these relatives? It's only in my family? <laughs> Mandy's got a relative like that? We do this all of the time. We talk about the church letting us down, the people of God, God letting us down. The truth is, you never stood up and made your need known because you were proud. You were too proud to say, I've done a foolish thing and I need help. Pride is the enemy of receiving from God. It always is. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer. Everybody should have a seer in their life. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Did you know that God had multiple choice options? I'll give you a hint though, none of these are good. Because when you take a census, the result will never be good. When you disobey God knowingly, the result will never be good. That's a good message to get down in your heart. When you do knowingly wrong, the result will never be good. Look at the options he gets to choose from. So God went to David and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine. Anybody want three years of famine? No. I like to eat at least three, four, five times a day. If it's chocolate, more. Three months of being swept away before your enemies. How, how about that? Three months of your enemies uh, killing everybody. With their swords overtaking you are three days of the sword of the Lord. Days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. You know, the first time I read this, I said, I'll take the enemies because at least I can fight, right? It's funny though. That really showed just how little of this message I understood, didn't it? How did David get into this problem in the first place? Self-reliance. Same way you got into the problems you have in your life. And if he chooses famine... What's he going to do about a famine? Well, he's going to go work harder and make more food, right? If he chooses his enemies overtaking him, how's he going to fix that problem? Well, he's going to go out and fight and try to win, right? All of those things got him where he is now. David makes a very wise choice, one that we could learn from. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Whatever your lot is in life, wherever you're at, it will always be better to appeal to the mercy of the Lord and do what He says than to try with war with men to fix it, to try to work harder to fix it. That will never work. How many people do you know have worked their whole life and are still not happy? They've got a guy with funny hair on TV that has more money than most. And you can look in his eyes and see he is not happy. He's traded in wives like cars and he's still not happy. He actually has gold fixtures in his bathrooms. And he is still not happy. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough. Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. That's an interesting thing. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. All of our problems in life, all of the judgment that comes upon us in life comes from this thing that we have. You have inside the ability to know what is right. You have God's Spirit working, convicting you through your conscience. This is the drawing of heaven. But you also have the drawing of a more beastly, earthly nature that says, if I don't fight for myself, who will? If I don't take what is mine, I'll never have anything. The selfish, self-reliant, earthly part of you. And when we're caught neither hot nor cold, not openly just lost, and not sold out for heaven under the control of heaven, but somewhere between heaven and earth, this is where the judgment of God always falls. Because you look like you're supposed to be a man from heaven and you act like you're supposed to be a man of the earth and everybody around us gets hurt in the process. These are God's people who take census and do things in their own strength. But there's a solution for it. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. 
Look at a righteous king who is accepting guilt upon himself. A righteous king that is saying, it's my fault, not theirs. And he's interceding because he cares more about other people than about himself. You ever heard about a king like that? That cared more about the sheep of Israel than he cared about his own life? Where was all this happening? The threshing floor of a man named Aruna. That is strange. David said to God, they're but sheep. And then he says, What have they done, O Lord my God? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. But do not let this plague remain on your people. Now plague's a nice word. What was happening to them? Death. So we have a king in Israel, much like a king of the sheep. A king in Israel who is snared by his own sin. Much like the ram was snared by his own crown in the thicket of sin. Both the ram helped avert the death of Isaac. Now, this man's helping to avert the death of all of Israel. All of that reminds us of something, doesn't it? A king caught by a crown of thorns who died so that a plague of death would not fall on us. The story is a repeating story throughout the Word, told in many different ways, at many different times, all with one aim, to get us to be self, less self-reliant, more reliant upon God, asking for His help, admitting our folly, that the things that plague us might go away. How many times do you have to hear something before you begin to respond? Well, if you're like me, many, many, many times. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar. Didn't Abraham build an altar? He built an altar on a mountain in the region of Moriah. Build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that God had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Arunah was threshing the wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons were with him, hid themselves. Then David approached, and when Arunah looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, Let me have the sight of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. If this man were a televangelist, if David were a televangelist, he would tell Aruna that he needed to pay for the opportunity to give up his own threshing floor because it was an honor to do something for him. I want you to hear the heart of a real man of God here. God has told him to go get the threshing floor. He doesn't go and say, give it to me for nothing because God has said so. He said, give it to me at the full price. Now there's something you don't know about Aruna unless you're pretty well read. You'd have to have read Josephus' book, Thrones of Blood. Josephus was a historian who was a near contemporary of Jesus. And he wrote down many things that were contemporary to the life of Jesus, but also a history of Israel prior to that. And he mentioned what was commonly taught in his day about all the major figures of the Bible. And what you find out about this man, Aruna, is that Josephus said, when David originally conquered the city of Jerusalem and took it from the Jebusites, of which Aruna was one, he found favor with David. Aruna and David became friends. So although Aruna was a part of a race that was an enemy of Israel and was being completely conquered, that they made a covenant together based on their friendship. So when David shows up and says, I need your threshing floor and I'll pay it at full price, what do you think Aruna does? Aruna already owes his life to David and he knows it. So he offers it for free. Do you know anybody who owes their life to a Jewish king and should offer everything you have to him freely? You know anybody like that? Because I do. When I look in the mirror, I see a man who deserved death but was pardoned because of the work of a Jewish king. Aruna said to David, Take it! Let my lord king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give you the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for all the grain offering. I will give all this. But King David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Saints, I want you to get two things from this before we wrap up this message. Number one, our Messiah, our King, He paid the full price. He didn't let you pay 
any of it. And secondly, if we're going to do anything for God, it better cost us something. Most of the time we're trying to offer God what costs us nothing. The change in our pockets, the time that we didn't want anyway. You can't sleep, so you'll read the Bible. Well, that's, that's, that's mighty brave of you. You're angry. You're in jail. You've got nothing else to do, so now you'll pray. We're always offering Him something that is less than our best. If you want to be godly like Abraham, if you want to receive a blessing greater than any dream you had ever had before, you have to offer Him something that is valuable to you. And then you're not buying it. You're showing Him that you trust Him by giving Him the best you have, knowing He will give you something better back. This is a mystery in the Gospel, but it's true. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. 600 shekels. That's a far cry from free, isn't it? By the way, a parallel passage says in 2 Samuel 24 that he paid him silver as well. So he paid him gold and silver. Divinity in the Bible is gold. He gave up his divinity so that you would not die. He gave up his silver so that you could be redeemed. Does that sound like a king that you know and have heard about? You testify to his existence every time you write a check by putting a date on it. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed bone offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar. It's amazing. God was pleased when He saw this altar completed. The parallel account says the plague stopped immediately. A righteous king who accepted personal responsibility of guilt for all of Israel interceded for them so that they might be saved. And he did it at Aruna's threshing floor. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, there's a temple built in Israel. A temple the likes of which the world had never seen. It says that it was in a region <coughs> on a mountain where Aruna's threshing floor was called Moriah. The very place that the Lord chose. All of these events are hundreds and hundreds of years apart. But God chose a fixed place on the globe. And He said, in this place, I will provide. And he provided in Solomon's day. He provided in David's day. He provided in Jesus' day. And he's still providing in our day. The question is, are you receiving? Are you standing back with crossed arms? I go one further. It's an amazing thing. But Abraham goes to the region and builds an altar. But it, the temple of Solomon is not built just in the region. It is built on the mountain called Moriah. That means that they probably were not the exact same place, contrary to popular opinion. In fact, if they had known the exact place that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, there'd be a real problem. They'd have built a shrine or something there, right? That site was reserved for something else. See, the region called Golgotha otherwise known as Calvary, it's in the region of Moriah. It's also on a mountain. A mountain called the Lord will provide. And He did. God didn't take Abraham's son. He sent His very only son. So in this one little region, there was a Jewish temple with an altar, an altar on the threshing floor of Aruna, where sacrifices were repeated endlessly for 1,600 years. The same place that all Israel had been spared in the days of David's census. And it reminded the people. But a stone's throw from there, less than a mile, there's another mountain in the region of Moriah where Abraham's son had not been sacrificed and God's son would be sacrificed. See, it seems to me that anywhere you set your foot in Israel, there is some message of God's redemption. Matthew and I looked at the map a few moments ago. If you stand in the region of Moriah and look towards Bethel, which means God's house, <coughs> written in the mountains, only visible from the sky. In the actual crevices of the mountains is the word Yahweh. The question is not, is God revealing Himself or does He want to save you or help you? The question is, are you looking? Because it is all around you. You don't have to go to Israel, to the region of Moriah, to see the various altars. You don't have to go to some faraway place. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart for anyone who will believe. Is your heart beating out of your chest as you hear those words? Are you just ready to go home and watch American Idol? 
It is funny and it's also not, isn't it? See, because God requires it to cost us something if we're going to get saved. You say, I thought salvation was free. No. It costs you your own will in your life. You have to decide that your way has not worked and only His will. Friends, that's not just a message for the quote-unquote lost. That's a message for any Christian that feels lost in any situation. It's time to stop taking our senses. To look at the repeating pattern in the Bible. To not let Satan incite us to do what we know is wrong. To appeal to the mercy of the Lord, claiming to have been fools. To take responsibility for our own actions. And to say, Lord, I deserve whatever comes my way, but I put myself in Your hands. Because history shows us, every mountaintop in Israel shows us, and every story in the Bible shows us, He is merciful. And He does not desire to burn you. He wants to help you. If somebody's painted a different picture of God to you in your life, if your own concept of God is different than that, you've not read the Word enough or somebody's lied to you about it. Tonight, if you leave here knowing nothing else, it's that God wants to change you. He loves you and loves the way that He made you. But He wants to change you into somebody who relies on Him. That's what any real husband wants. Y'all stand to your feet and we'll pray. By the way, while we're standing to our feet and praying, in the region of Moriah, if you're standing where the temple is and you're looking outside the city gates to where Golgotha is, the two areas that we just talked about, Aruna's threshing floor and the region of Moriah, on the day that Jesus was crucified, the lamb that Isaac was asking for was being crucified. You know what was happening in the temple at the very same moment? Passover lambs on David's threshing floor, Aruna's threshing floor, were being sacrificed. Every direction that you looked while standing in Moriah, you know what you saw? Something dying so that you would no longer have to. The hope of our gospel is a resurrection hope. Something's died so that you can find life. I pray that you did. Oh, join hands. Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, with all of our heart, we stretch out for You. Lord, I confess that many times, in many different ways, I have played the fool. Lord, I've tried to make things work. Shove square pegs in round holes. Tonight, I take a new direction. I teshuba. I turn towards You. I ask You, Lord God, to show me, to show them how to raise our families, how to love our wives, how to be men and women of God in the workplace and in our homes. Though we're appealing to Your mercy, saying we want to be instructed by the living God. And if You show us, Lord God, and You're patient with us, we will surely do it. We want to be obedient to You. Help us to trust You, mighty God. We love You. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.